Well, we wrote that uh, Jeremiah 29, this letter that God inspires Jeremiah to send to the first captives that have been taken away captive into Babylon. And you might think, well, what are we going to get positive out of that for us in the 21st century? So we'll, uh, we'll give it our best. And uh, in fact, it does open up really quite relevantly to, to our lives today. And just to set the context, the Babylonians attacked Judah in uh, several sort of waves, and the first group of captives, or several uh, first groups of captives, are taken away. And there's still a king in Jerusalem, and Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. And these captives are taken off to Babylon, and it seems that they have there false prophets who tell them in the name of God, it's all okay, no problem, you'll soon be back home. And God inspires Jeremiah to write to them and say, well, actually, no, you're going to be there 70 years, and here's my commands for you for how you should live. And that there's going to be a, a restoration at the end of 70 years. And so he tells them, verse 5, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat the fruit of them, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased and not diminished, and seek the peace of the city, that's Babylon, where I have caused you to be carried away captives, pray unto the Lord for it, from the peace thereof shall you have peace. Now, Comparing those words with other prophecies of the Restoration, we find something very similar. For example, if you look at Isaiah 65, verse 22, you see very similar language. Isaiah 65, verse 22, in this new Jerusalem that is to be created, verse 18, they created Jerusalem a rejoicing, her people a joy, when Jerusalem is restored, and God rejoices in Jerusalem, verse 21, they shall build houses and live in them, plant vineyards, eat the fruit of them, they shall not build and another inhabit it, and plant and another eat, for my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands, and their offspring, verse 23, with them will also rejoice. And they will call and I will answer, which is again from Jeremiah 29, we just, uh, just read that just now, uh, in verse 12, Then you will call upon me, and I will hearken unto you. So, what he's telling them to do then, is to live there in Babylon, in exile, in a way in which Jerusalem and Judah will live at the time of the Restoration. Now we know that uh, passages like Isaiah 65 are actually really talking about the coming kingdom of God on earth. Because when the possibility was, was made by God for Judah to return, most of them chose not to. This is at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Most of them chose the, the cushy life in Babylon and couldn't be bothered to return. And so the whole prophecies, all these prophecies about the restoration, were deferred and they were reinterpreted. It's not that God's word will not come true, but the, the primary intention, shall we say, that he had, that his people would return from Babylon and establish some kind of kingdom-type situation there in the land, this all got deferred. And it will come true, but it will come true when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom here on the earth. Now, those words we just read there in Jeremiah 29 about building houses and you yourself living in them and planting 
their gardens and you yourself eating the fruit of them and your children and grandchildren rejoicing with you and living in peace. This is all very similar to what we read in Deuteronomy 28, especially verse 30, where God says that if you are obedient, then you will build houses and live in them and plant plants and eat the fruit of them and you will rejoice in peace with your kids and your, your grandkids but if you are disobedient then you will build and another person will live in it you will uh, be engaged to a wife and someone else will lie with her you will not have peace and you will not see your grandchildren so then what God is saying to these sinful people they have been taken captive into Babylon as he keeps reminding them for their sins is to recognise that their judgement is just but to live as if they are in the kingdom, even though they are not. To live as if they're in the time of restoration, although that's not yet. They've still got to wait for that. So then, this opens up to, to us, because all through the New Testament, we encounter language that applies to us as the believers, which is actually taken out of the Old Testament in a context of Judah in captivity in Babylon. First Peter 1 verse 17 in the RSV talks about us living in this world as the time of our exile. That we are, as it were, those people in exile. So whatever you read uh, about Judah in captivity in Babylon, in some sense this is talking about us because this is the time of our exile. Recognising our judgement is just as it were that we have sinned and yet there is the hope of Israel, the hope of restoration, the hope of the kingdom at the end. And we're told even now, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 17, come out from amongst them and be separate and be my people. Now this is quoting Isaiah 48:20, Jeremiah 50 verse 8, Zechariah 2 verse 7 about <coughs> Judah being told to leave Babylon at the end of the 70 years. So, in a sense, we are asked even now to realise that we have been redeemed from Babylon and to come out from amongst them. Although this will ultimately come to its term when Jesus comes back and when we finally, as it were, leave Babylon and Babylon is, is destroyed and God's kingdom comes. So then, we should be living now in the spirit of the kingdom. Just as they were told, build houses and you live in them, plant gardens and you eat the fruit of them, take you wives, have children, have grandchildren, and seek the peace of the city where you are. We are to live the kingdom life now. And when in the Gospel of John particularly we read this idea that you have eternal life, what does this mean? For we know that we shall die. But we have eternal life. What does that mean? I suggest it means that we are to live now the kind of life which we will eternally live. So the eternal life is not so much talking about, well, here and now you're going to start living forever because we know that we shall die in this, in this life. But we are asked to live the sort of life that we will have in God's kingdom. Now, if we don't do that, and we live the life of this world, then if Jesus comes back and, and says to us, well, okay, anyway, here you are, you can live forever, this will be terrible for us. If we don't love righteousness, peace, justice, kindness, 
justice, goodness. If this is not naturally what we like, if we prefer to sit around in the evenings and look at movies that talk about all the very opposite of all those things, if we rejoice to, to gossip about uh, and chatter about all the very opposite of those things, and if these things are so attractive to us, the adultery, the, 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 the perversion, the murder, the uh, whatever it is that goes on in this world, if that is what is to us so attractive, even though, of course, we're very careful not to actually do those things, but if in some vicarious sense we, we kind of enjoy them, uh, and that is what our life is about, like it is for most of the people on this planet at this time, then for what purpose will God give us his kingdom? Won't it be like boarding for us? Won't it be actually awful to have to be good forever and ever and ever and ever? Paul says that if we love his appearing, all those that love his appearing will be saved. And I think what he means by that is, if the dominant desire of our hearts is to be like God and to be like the Lord Jesus, if that is our dominant emotion, if when we fail we are so disappointed with ourselves that we have not lived as, as we should, not thought as we should, not acted or spoken as we should, but we open God's word and we love it. If like David we can say, I love your word. It's to me, the, as Jeremiah says earlier, uh, the rejoicing, the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Then God's kingdom is for us and it all makes sense. So then we are to live the kingdom life now, in its essence. And, for example, what does this mean? It means, for example, let's take our relationships with our brothers and sisters. If we believe that we're going to eternally live together with each other, say you and, and me, that we're going to live eternally together, rejoicing in God's grace, then we ought to uh, be doing that now. It's inconceivable that we, we should be saying to each other, nope, I don't want anything to do with you. You are this, that, the other, or you're just not my type of person. I simply, uh, no, you're just not my kind of person. No, I don't want anything to do with you. Uh, see you later. Or in time of provocation, that we are vicious and nasty in our thoughts, in our feelings, in our words perhaps to those for whom Christ has died and those who shall live with us eternally by grace in God's kingdom Th this is not living the kingdom life is it? and in all our decisions and in all our actions and in all the decisions we make in life because life in one sense is a, just a flow of decisions that we're asked to make every minute almost well in those decisions decide them from the perspective of someone who longs to be in God's kingdom. Do I want to work those extra hours? Do I want to work in this place or that place that clearly is pulling me away from the things of God's kingdom? Or do I want to take a lower, a lower income so that I can't quite tickle my taste buds in restaurants and stuff as uh, maybe we'd all uh, like to, uh, and not wear new clothes but second-hand clothes, uh, so that I can be in a more kingdom environment, so that I'm not dragged away from the things of God. Now, these are the sort of things I mean when I say that we are to live the eternal life 
Now, the sort of life we shall eternally live is the life we should be living now. And let's remember that 70 years, 80 years, coffin and hacking our way through this world might seem long, but actually this is a tiny fraction of a percent compared to the eternity of who we shall eternally be. So then, this is what God was telling these captives, these sinners really, who've been taken captive into Babylon, he's saying, look, don't listen to these false prophets that tell you that, no, no, it's all going to end, this is unjust, you're going to get out of here soon. Just accept your situation that you're here for 70 years, and that your generation will uh, not probably see the end of this, and you will die here in Babylon, but that's okay, you will not see with your own eyes the coming of my kingdom, as it were, but live the kingdom life now, because it shall come. Verse 6. They were told to have lots of children, so that you may be increased there and not diminished. Now those two Hebrew words translated increased and diminished, you find in chapter 30, verse 19. Uh, verse 18, God says, Behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents. The city shall be builded upon her own heap. Um, this is talking about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Out of them, 19, shall proceed thanksgiving, and the voice of them that make merry. And I will multiply them. This is the same Hebrew word as increased there, in chapter 29, verse 6. And they shall not be few. Same Hebrew word, diminished. They shall... Uh, I, I will increase them and they shall not be diminished. So again, this is a prophecy about the kingdom, about the restoration. And yet, God tells them, whilst they're in Babylon, there, verse 6 of 29, that you may be increased or multiplied there and not be made few. So again, live that kingdom life now. Don't just think that it's jam tomorrow, it's good time coming. The good news of God's kingdom actually is about life now. It's not all about a future political kingdom of God on earth. It is about that, and that is not under question. But when you look at the parables, the teaching that Jesus gave about the kingdom, about what his kingdom will be like, those parables are not actually so much speaking about the physical details of a future kingdom to come. They are talking about relationships that we have in this life. For example, about forgiving our debtors. And so the good news of God's kingdom does not simply equal good time coming after we're dead or hopefully in my lifetime sometime in the future. It starts now. Because the kingdom of God is whatever God has kingship over. And when we say that we accept God as our king and the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Master and King, well, that means that we're signing ourselves up right now to be his kingdom, what he reigns over. And first and foremost, a king reigns over people. That is the essence of a kingdom. A kingdom is, in the first instance, people. And we are his kingdom. Right now, in prospect. Of course we die. We're like those exiles there. The 70 years was not up. They were told, look, 70 years, it's, uh, it's not coming right now. and You've got to wait for it. But it shall come. 
Verse 10. Now these false prophets have been saying that, don't worry, you're going to get out of here soon. And God says, no, after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you. You might like to underline the phrase, my good word. Because those two Hebrew words translated good word, they occurred in chapter 33, verse 14. And you may like to just look over there, chapter 33, verse 14. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing, that good word, same Hebrew words, which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah, in those days and at that time when I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, Jerusalem shall dwell safely, and this is the name of which she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. And the descendants of David will reign eternally upon the throne of the house of Israel. Verse 17. Now, that did not happen at the end of the 70 years. Who's this branch of righteousness that is going to grow up in the house of David? Well, my servant Zerubbabel was the branch. We're told that. And it seems to me that he, along with a number of other people in Old Testament history, could have been a Messiah figure. He could have been. But in extra-biblical history, it's recorded that Zerubbabel actually went back to Babylon. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. But the point is, he failed, ultimately, to be the, uh, the Messiah figure that he could have been. And when you read Haggai, Zechariah, particularly Haggai, they're encouraging the people who've returned to stop being so selfish and to get on and enable, as it were, God's kingdom to come. But as Haggai said, you're busy building your own beautiful houses, uh, not bothered that God's temple, God's house, is lying still pretty well in ruins. You remember all the problems that Ezra and Nehemiah had when they went back to, to rebuild the kingdom to rebuild the temple and yet it all sort of didn't really work out very well because the people didn't really in the end want it they just got their little bit of land set up their farmsteads and were content enough just with their their little farmstead and didn't see the bigger picture but they could have brought about the fulfillment of those kingdom prophecies and so you see a a tragedy really that God had said here in chapter 29 verse 10 after 70 years I will visit you and I will perform my good word toward you but Israel would not time and again you see this that God sets up a potential that's possible for his people but they don't as it were allow it to come true in the Psalms were told that God would have fed his people with honey out of the rock but Israel limited the Holy One of Israel and so he gave them water but he, he had in mind to give them honey out of the rock as Jesus said to Jerusalem if only you could see the things that belong to your peace the things that were possible if they accepted him and so God knows all the possible futures that there could be. He knew, for example, and Jesus knew, that if the miracles that Jesus did in first century Israel had been done 
in, in cities like Tyre and Sidon or in places like Sodom they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes but they did not uh, but, but Israel did, did not but God knew what could have been and in the prophets Hosea is a very good example of this God laments about what could have been this is like a parent lamenting over a lost child what could have been I planted you a good vine he says in Isaiah 6 Isaiah 5 he said you're my vineyard I did everything that I could so that you could have brought forth wonderful fruit but you didn't and so when we ask ourselves why do we feel sad why do we weep why do we lament it's very often because we think of what could have been young couple going out with each other and uh, well he doesn't want her anymore he says now there's no future and he's off with someone else and the girl is left crying and what's she crying over about what could have been and, and this is the whole thing you know, this is why we mourn I think the, uh, the death of young people far more or in a far more, uh, far more painful way than we mourn the falling asleep of uh, someone who dies in a nursing home in their 90s you know, surrounded by their kids, their grandkids, even their great-grandkids. There's something more tragic. And why is that? Uh, What is more tragic? Because we think of what might have been. And so in a sense to be God, to know all the possible futures for every single person that you created, particularly for his people Israel, this is a tragic thing. Now in verse 10 he says after 70 years I'll visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Causing you. You remember what happened um, in Ezra chapter 1 that Cyrus makes this decree and says all the Jews here, the captivity of Judah that are here in Babylon, you can go back and you can rebuild your temple, you can go back and live there and I'll uh, fund this. Whatever you want for your temple, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. It was quite amazing that this great king would just decide to do that. This is clearly the result of God working in various ways upon his heart to cause them to do that. Uh, To cause them to do that. And so God caused them to return, verse 10, but actually they did not. The vast majority of them chose to remain. And that is why for me the book of Esther has a very tragic ending. But it ends, there's been this persecution by the wicked Haman but it all ends really nice and rosy and the Jews are popular, loved everybody thinks they're great sends presents to them and there's again extra biblical history that shows how how powerful they became in Babylon that they were popular they became the bankers they, uh, they got on well in business the whole idea of sitting by the rivers of Babylon and there we wept when we remembered Zion this, uh, this was only just at the beginning it didn't stay like that at all they got on well in Babylon and so when the call came to go back no, they didn't really want to go it seems that only the very poor amongst them who hoped they might get a better deal back in this restored kingdom uh, it, only they really went so then God set up a potential but they flunked it, they messed it. Uh, this is why 
this is uh, sort of similar to, to maybe in a, in a sports context, in a team. Somebody sets up a beautiful opportunity for a guy to score a goal or whatever, and he misses. Or he's not interested. Or he uh, pulls out his mobile phone and he's talking to his girlfriend on a mobile phone instead of playing the game. And, uh, you know, this is on a far huger scale how it is with us. That God has set up for each of us every day potentials. That if we had said a word to that woman that we met this morning, you know, maybe she was really looking for the Lord. If we had bothered going to see that brother who's in hospital, you know what, just this afternoon he was crying from loneliness. And we could have gone there to see him and God set up the potential, but we didn't. Because we got caught up with whatever else we were doing. And this must be so, in a sense, frustrating for God that he sets up millions, if not billions, of potentials for his people. And we just mess them so often. So, if one thing comes out of all this, I urge you to pray to God to help you to be sensitive to what he's setting you up for and to have the strength to do it and the perception to do it. I love verse 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end, to give you a hope, a hopeful end. But he says this at the very time that they are so sinful. Because this is just at the beginning, when they're sinning, hating him really, turning away from him there in Judah, and so he sends them into captivity in his wrath, in one sense, in Babylon. They get to Babylon, they, they have false prophets. He talks in verse 23 about what was going on amongst the Jews in Babylon. They have committed villainy, they've committed adultery with their neighbours' wives, have spoken lying words in my name, which I have not commanded them, even I know and am a witness. Even I, even I, God, even I know. But he also says in verse 11, but I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil. So in the very height, as it were, of Judah's iniquity, God has thoughts of peace and love toward them. I find that a, a wonderful insight into the, the love of God. And in fact, a lot of the restoration prophecies, which later became reapplied to be kingdom prophecies, a lot of them, if not all of them, were given at, a, at the very time that Israel was sinning. Sinning big time, angering God. And yet, at that very time, he thinks up for them a wonderful future. Now, I am not saying in that sense that we are better than Israel but I mean we have not crucified his son, we have accepted his son admittedly in weakness but we have and we are seeking to go God's way I, I truly believe that of you all that you are seeking to go God's way in weakness and, and carrying the, the, the burdens maybe that you don't need to carry dysfunctions, all the rest of it but we seek to now, if this was the love of God for Israel, in the height of their wickedness, in the height of their rebellion against him, he's busy thinking up a wonderful future for them. How much more, then, 
Is he doing the same for us? We in our weakness, and he there in heaven, he knows the thoughts he has towards us, thoughts of peace and not of evil, so that we might have a wonderful hope in the end. And he says, verse 12 and 13, Then you shall call upon me, you shall go and pray unto me, and I will listen unto you. You shall seek me and find me, and I will be found of you. So, these words are picked up by the Lord Jesus when he says, Seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened, pray, and you'll get the answer. And yet we, we all, are, I suppose, have found that that doesn't work because we've, we've sought all sorts of things in prayer and we've not received them. I talk about material human things in this life. But when Jesus was saying things like that, seek and you shall find, pray and you'll get heard, he's alluding to passages like this, which are not so much talking about anything physical or material. It's talking about a repentant people of Judah in exile in Babylon who want to be out of that situation and he says when you seek me you will find me so then it's not a blank check when Jesus says seek and you shall find knock and it will be opened pray and it will be answered it's not a blank check about any kind of seeking anything praying about literally anything it's more specific it's talking about if you really want to be with God if you really want to return to him, absolutely 101% for sure, God will hear that prayer. Now that is a wonderful thing, because really it is wonderful and beyond words. Because we all seek to be far closer to God than we are. We're all fed up of living in exile in this Babylon. And we want to be with him. To depart and to be with Christ is far better. Now I know, you know, it's slightly out of context, Paul was talking really about his death, but um, I believe that that's how we feel. That we want to be more spiritual than we are. We're frustrated that our minds can't be controlled, it seems, uh, as we'd like them to be. Our thoughts so easily wander all over the place, we can't maintain spiritual intensity we feel for a fleeting moment it seems the, the very real presence of the Lord Jesus and then we live our lives in a way distinctly different to how we would live them if we actually knew that he was standing next to us and then we lament that well I don't seem to feel him and his presence as I should these are the sorts of things that Jesus has in mind when he says seek and you shall find pray and it will be answered because he's taking his, his words right out of Jeremiah 29 here when Jeremiah is saying to the exiles in Babylon seek God and you will find him surrounded as you are by the materialism and the idolatry of Babylon seek the God of Israel and he will be found of you and so that's such an encouragement in the real essence of our spirituality and of our seeking to come closer to God that he wants us to find him because God is also in search of man earlier in Jeremiah Jeremiah was told to go and seek for men to, to run around the squares of, of the city of Jerusalem to see if he could find a man for the Lord and so God is in search of man 
and we are also in search of God. It's not a one-way thing. It's not that God is some sort of passive or indifferent. He is in search of man, and we are in search of him. We should be. And when we meet, there is some uh, electricity there. There is some dynamism there. There is some huge static charge. This is why all the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents, because God is in search of that sinner. And I don't think that refers actually to baptism. I think it refers to a guy standing at a bus stop, waiting for his bus, and searching for God, and thinking about his life, and opening himself to God, and crying to God, and God hearing him, and him finding God, and God finding him. This is what can go on in our lives day by day. Now, just as a final thought, in verse 14, having said, you shall call upon me, pray to me, and I will hear you, you shall seek me and find me, when you shall search for me with all your heart, he then says, verse 14, and I will be found of you, says the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, and I will bring you again into the place from whence I caused you to be carried away captive. That could be so, that this return was in fact conditional. Although when he says in verse 10, after 70 years be accomplished, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, that actually I think you could read it as being conditional on whether they were actually going to seek for God and find him, seek him with their whole heart, and then he would be found of them, and then he would return their captivity, then he would gather them and bring them again to to the land. This goes on, I think, more often than we realise in Bible prophecy, that even though the conditions might not be stated specifically in the words of the actual prophecy, A lot of Bible prophecy is conditional. It doesn't mean it won't come true, but I think that it comes true if if human beings fail uh, and let their side of the condition fall and they let the ball drop. It's not that it doesn't come true. It comes true in its essence, but in a different way. And that's why all these prophecies about the restoration are going to come true in their essence, but maybe not in their, their... every detail in a sort of literal sense uh, but they will come true in their essence when the Lord comes back and establishes God's kingdom now this is why he talks here about 70 years and in Daniel 9 Daniel who was then in Babylon and had spent his life in Babylon uh, really from a young young man uh, he prays to God and says look what about these 70 years and he confesses the sin of Judah uh, and says, you know, Jeremiah says, it's 70 years. So, Lord, what's the problem? And the answer of God is to give him the 70 weeks prophecy. And I wonder if what God was saying was, well, yes, Daniel, you are searching for me with all your heart, but your people are not. So, therefore, there is a uh, reinterpretation of the 70 years prophecy, and it's going to be called the 70 weeks prophecy, and here are the details, and it involved a Messiah coming and being cut off, etc., and a further destruction of Jerusalem. Now, get me right on this. Um, I have never come across an interpretation of the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9 which in any way satisfies me even though I have gone in writing myself and 
given my best shot at it. Yet actually I, I've not come across anything that really satisfies me. And I would suggest that this conditional prophecy here in Jeremiah 29, that after 70 years you will go back, but actually if you are searching for me with all your heart, and if uh, you are calling upon me and praying unto me as you should, then it doesn't happen. And Daniel notes that. And so it's kind of uh, deferred and a 70 weeks of prophecy is given. But I, I think that also didn't in that sense uh, come about. In its essence it will come true and it came true in the death of the Lord Jesus and the cutting off of Messiah the Prince uh, and that finally in AD 70 the whole um, temple system was destroyed and in the end everlasting righteousness shall be brought in. You've got to say in Zechariah 1 verse 12 where Zechariah again asks the angel why is there no restoration? And again he mentions the 70 years. And God's answer in Zechariah 1.16 was I am returned to Jerusalem. I have gone back there. You ask me why there's no restoration after 70 years. Zechariah, well, I, I've gone back. But the point is that, as Haggai and Zechariah make clear, the people did not really want to go God's way. They did not, in their hearts, want to return. Because the, this Hebrew word that's used for the return of the people from Babylon to Judah, this is the same word translated repent. They, a few of them went back, but actually they did not repent. And so therefore they didn't go back. And so all these prophecies, as I see it about the restoration, have their ultimate term in the establishment of the kingdom on earth when the Lord Jesus returns. Now, where that speaks volumes to us is that God, in your life, in the very small things, apparently, of your life, God has set up all kinds of potentials of what could be and what he wishes to be. But, but, Israel would not. And very often we also would not. But I also believe that we... Uh, I don't like to start, as it were, boasting against the branches, as Paul puts it in Romans. But uh, we are seeking. I believe we are seeking God. And I believe we are seeking to be his servants. Quite frankly, we wouldn't be here uh, unless we were. And so therefore, God is eager, very, very eager for you and for me, to do what he wants, to do and achieve his purpose in your world. So none of us should feel that I am useless. It's all for the others. I am just a pew sitter sitting here listening to words. This cannot be the case. It must not be the case. Because it's not that God is only using some of his people. He has very detailed plans for every single one of us. I mean on an hourly, daily basis. At times it's almost too much to, to, to feel, to, to hold the intensity of all this. It almost seems too much. But I do believe that God does want to work with every single one of us. If we let the ball drop, he doesn't walk away in disgust. He doesn't walk away. 
in, in anger and disappointment. He keeps on and on trying, just as he did with Judah. Okay, you don't want, want me after 70 years? Okay, let's try this 70 weeks business. That didn't work out. Okay. But in the end, in the very end, his purpose will be fulfilled. So don't worry if you can't understand the details of how these prophecies work out. That doesn't matter. I really don't think that matters in itself. Uh, because God is putting all plan A, plan B, plan C, D, etc. into operation, trying, trying, trying to work with us. And you and I, I do believe, are amongst those who want to work with him, who are not resisting, who are not indifferent, but are seeking to be sensitive. And so therefore he will, for sure, work with you this day, this evening, tomorrow, and God willing, all our doubts.